Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, in Parshat Yitro this morning. This week we celebrated Tu Bishvat. We celebrated Tu Bishvat, the New Year of the Trees. And uh, we're in the Parsha this morning that is Revelation, which we study a couple of times during the year. Um, so you know we generally read uh, pretty closely on the triennial division, on the triennial cycle, so that we focus on different parts of the text that we wouldn't normally necessarily be drawn to study. Parsha Yitro, we study the entire Parsha every time we study Yitro. So it's always kind of figuring out which part of Yitro to do. We can't do the whole thing, obviously. So, um, But this year, I was very interested in Aviva Zorenberg's work uh, around the beginning of Parshat Yitro. So if you will open to Exodus chapter 18, verse 1. So we are at the point in our narrative where the people are gathered in Sinai and are will be convened soon to receive Torah. We are still with the understanding of this people that they are on their way to Israel. They've been freed from Egypt. They are no longer slaves in Egypt. And they are on their way to begin the you know, process of conquering the land of Israel. The journey shouldn't take all that long. So they're going to receive Torah. And then the idea is that they, once they understand the requirements of a society based in God's understanding of um, justice and equity and all those things that Torah values stand for, once they receive the instructions about how to do that, they can go into the promised land and implement them in this new society that they are going to build. Now, you and I and every other hearer of these stories when they were oral stories know that that is not what's going to happen, right? We know they are not going to receive Torah, receive the instructions, keep marching and be victorious and take the promised land and implement these instructions that they got and live happily ever after. We're Jews. It's not our story. It's just not our story. Um, so our story is we know what's going to happen, but We'll stay with with the moment we're in, but I want to I want to talk a little bit, especially about Yitro, with a concept when we're dealing with Torah texts and we're dealing with explicating Torah texts. There's been developed a a set of rules for exegesis for um, for interpreting texts of Torah. <clears throat> for the rabbis, this was divinely given. This is the divine word. And for them, therefore, this is not a history book. So you don't only look at how things relate to each other linearly in these texts. For the rabbis, rather, you could look at any text and it will explicate something that happened earlier, right? Because 
if it's divine revelation, there's so many levels to that that it's not about what happened, right? It's about the truths that are revealed in all of these stories, and you can move them around. So they will often, to explicate a verse in Exodus, look to a verse in Genesis, or in Samuel, or in the Psalms, and they will say, so that must mean, even though it happens you know, either earlier or later. And the concept is Ein Mukdam Umeuchal Batoa. There is no early or late in Torah. So there's no like before and after in Torah. You can move all the pieces around. If you just did that all the time, it wouldn't make any sense to us as human beings. So God is good to us and gives us something in order so that we can understand it. But you should feel free to pick up a verse here and make it tell you something about the verse over here. Why do I bring that up now? Because some scholars in our tradition use that rule of exegesis to say that Yitro coming to Moses, the part we're going to read right now, happened after the revelation of Torah. That it's after Matan Torah that Yitro comes and visits Moshe. And we'll see if we can't find some textual hints um, as to why they feel the need to go there. But if it's read that way, it changes very much, in some ways, our understanding of the incident and makes for some some interesting parallels. Um, and Aviva Zornberg plays with that. We're not going to study that so much today, but wanting to introduce you to another concept of Torah study, um, which is how we explicate Torah and how we use the rules of exegesis to, to look at these texts. So the people are camped in in Sinai. What else is Sinai called? Here, one tradition calls that mountain, that location Sinai. What else is it called? Chorev. Another variant tradition calls it Chorev. We see both in Torah. Sinai and Chorev. So they're camped at Sinai, and we get this incident of Yitro coming with Zipporah and Moshe's two sons. We don't have the story about when they left. Moshe's bringing them with him on his mission, right? He He's coming from Midian, and he brings Zipporah. Yitro is bringing, thank, thank you, Yitro is bringing Zipporah and the boys to Moshe. We don't have the story about why they're not with him. Because when he left Midian, he took them with him. Because remember, we had that bridegroom of blood story. Remember that? So possibly that bridegroom of blood story was a much bigger story, and we've lost a lot of that tradition. We've lost that story. But perhaps part of that narrative is that Sipora goes home. There's a question of how did uh, uh, Jethro know that uh, God was doing all these great things? Excellent. Thank you, Reuben, for opening us with a question. So somebody, so I'm setting the scene for us for chapter 18, verse 1, if someone will read. Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out from Egypt. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after she had been sent home, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, that is to say, I've been a stranger in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, meaning, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' son and wife to him in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. Each asked after the other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Why don't you finish 8 through 12, please? Moses then recounted to his father-in-law everything that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the kindness that the Lord had shown Israel when he delivered them from the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro said, who delivered you from Egyptians and from Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, yes, by the result of their very schemes against the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to partake of the meal before God with Moses' father-in-law. Okay, so the first of our... The first part of this story of Moshe and his father-in-law. So Yitro, who we're told here is Chohen um, Midian, the a priest of Midian, and he's Choten Moshe. He's the father-in-law of Moshe. The rabbis say here, uh, ah, so this Moshe status has gone up in the world that Yitro was identified as now. Yes, he's a priest of Midian, but he is the father-in-law of the great Moshe. Because remember, Moshe had been a shepherd for him, right? He was, you know, working in his dry goods store. And now it's, you know, that that his claim to honor is that he is Choten Moshe. He is the father-in-law of Moshe. But be that as it may. So he heard all that God had done for Moshe and Israel, God's people, that God had Yud Yud Hey Vav Hey had taken Israel out of Mitzrayim. Reuben, what was your question? My question was: uh, We know that uh, uh, Jethro came because he heard about the great things that God had done for Israel. How did he know? How did he know? A messenger. CNN. <laughs> or CNN. Um, Margot, spoken like, spoken like one of the rabbis. <laughs> spoken like one of the rabbis. So some of, some interpretations are an angel told Yitro of everything. Of course. Has to be. If we don't know how something happened like that, must be a malach. Must be a messenger. Must be an angel. So, an angel told him, okay, how else might he have known? How, how else might he have heard? Word travels fast when a whole, it's, you know, let's say 600,000 people <laughs> on the leave, the slaves conquer Egypt, the most powerful, you know, country in the ancient world. Yes, news would travel fast. So we could assume if there's some huge event that happens in the ancient world, there would have been a way to communicate that pretty quickly. Um, that word travels fast. There are networks and highways for information. We shouldn't think the you know internet is the only such invention. The trade routes, military outposts, right? There were ways to kind of send 
stuff down the line. But I want to hold on to part of Ruben's question. And rather than focus on the how, Aviva Zorenberg wants us to focus on the what. What did he hear? <laughs> Presumably. But we're gonna we're gonna hold on. We're gonna look at her in a little bit. But so so and Yitro, the father in law of Moshe, took Tsipora, the wife of Moshe, right? Um excuse me. <coughs> he so he, he's taking her, he's he's bringing her after he had Shilucheha, after he had sent her. We're not sure what this means. We're not sure what this sending is. There are some ancient Near Eastern documents that seem to use this shalach as divorce. But, so there, you can imagine, there's some midrash that plays with that. Um, but for the most part, because he's bringing her back to Moshe and he calls her his wife, it doesn't seem to be implying that they were divorced. Um, so it may just be simply he sent her home, maybe because it was dangerous. Uh, he decides it's too dangerous. We don't know. But she had been sent back, and as I said, we've lost that narrative. We've lost that story. So Moses <clears throat> left Egypt and left his wife and children some other place. So we th- we think... He sent her back before he got to Egypt. She wasn't in Egypt. Ah. Um, it would have been hard to send her out of Egypt. She would have never been. Right. So, so we presume he sent her back home while they were in Midian. I mean, while they were in the desert. I thought it was after the exodus uh, from Egypt. Yeah. They were never in Egypt. Right. So, because we have Moshe and everybody in Sinai, Zipporah is in Midian. Because Yitro's bringing her and the boys from Midian. So it would have made little sense for her to be in Egypt and then go to Midian. Like, And how would you send her out of Egypt? You didn't have the power and control to send someone out of Egypt, right? So presumably, as they're descending to Egypt, she gets sent back to Midian. And now he's bringing her to Moshe with Moshe's two sons. Ah, very interesting. Why do you think? Why do you think? So Moshe's been gone for a while, right? So she's been bringing up these boys, and the only one we know when they're going is one of them. We don't hear about the second one. Right, so this is the first time we're hearing of the second son. We only hear about Gershom when the bride blood of bridegroom incident happens on the way to Egypt. We never heard about the second son. So if he's six four, <laughs> might need to talk about it. What did the rabbis say? I mean, keeps on the text keeps on saying. Yitro Moses' father-in-law, Moses' father-in-law, every single time. You would have thought once was enough. <laughs> we got the point. So or this two, or three. <laughs> By the tenth time. So this is where the rabbis stress that now 
Yitro's kavod that used to come from being Kohen Midian, a priest of Midian, now his kavod comes from being Choten Moshe, because now Moshe has reached this huge status. That's their interpretation. We can, obviously, we're invited to play with our own. So, um, one of one of her sons is Gershom, meaning, you know, Gershom. I was a stranger there. And the other was named Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Okay, that is not what Eliezer means. <laughs> All right. Eliezer means God is my help. Eli, my God, Ezer is a help, right? Another place, another way that we know when Eve is called Ezer Kenegdo, that it can't mean something weak or assistant human, right? Because God is called, again, Ezer, help. So God is my help is his name, essentially, uh, referencing Moshe's God, you know, meaning Eliezer's God is the same as his father's God who delivered his father from Pharaoh. <clears throat> Yitro Moshe's father-in-law <laughs> brought Moses' sons and wives to him in the wilderness when he was encamped at the mountain of God. The rabbis focus a lot on this to say this is a big deal that the priest of Midian leaves Midian and goes into the wilderness to deliver Zipporah and the boys. That that this is a very big deal that he's kind of leaving civilization and going into the middle of nowhere to to, to go to Moshe, but for them, this is not just he's going to Moshe. He's telling Moshe why he's coming. It's not just to deliver Zipporah and the boys, God forbid. Something much bigger is happening. What's happening? He's advice Moshe. We know that. That's right. We know that. So, but there's something else that the rabbis read before that about why he's there. So, he sent word to Moshe, I, your father-in-law, Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Right. So he sends messages to Moshe, I'm on my way with your family. The rabbis say, now he knows that Moshe is such a big deal that Moshe might not want to see him so much anymore. So he says, if not for me, do it for your wife. And if not for your wife, then for your sons. But... Whatever. Um, so Moshe goes out to meet his father-in-law. From this, the rabbis derive that we should always go out to meet, right? So we see this a lot in Torah, that the way you show respect is that you go out and you meet the person arriving to show their status. That's why we go out to meet Shabbat. That's why we greet Shabbat, the bride, the queen of Shabbat, right? Is a... Uh, it's respectful when royalty or someone important is arriving. You don't wait for them to come knock on your door. When you're expecting them, you go out to meet Reminds them. Me Abraham. When Abraham. To meet the three. Absolutely. The, the pinnacle of hospitality. And now we see, of course, Moshe couldn't be anything less, God forbid. So he is, of course, going to meet his father-in-law as is proper. What else is proper when you meet someone of that you are giving high status to? 
you bow low before them, right? Knees to the ground, forehead to the ground is the proper physical response to their arrival. So he does that, and he kisses him. Hmm? You wash their feet. Exactly. And each asks after the other's shalom. Each asks about the other's wholeness. Very nice, Laura. Each asks after the other's well-being. Right? All right. And then they went into the tent. So he brings them in. Ignoring his wife. He ignores his wife. He adores his wife? He ignores. He ignores his wife. Very interesting point. Nothing is said of Moshe greeting Tsipora. Nothing. Right? Or the boys. Or the boys. Um, so, right, we, we know nothing about these boys. And to your point, they're called her boys. And to some extent, I think, and this is just me, but I often wonder if it isn't because for Aaron, the, the people who are going to inherit the priesthood from Aaron are going to be sons and grandsons. It's what do we, I always struggle with this word. What is it called? Genealogical or genealogy? No. How, how do you say when you pass something on because it's you, your blood? Hereditary. It's hereditary. The, the priesthood is hereditary. So you don't earn it. You get it because your father was a priest. It's passed to you because of blood. So that's how Aaron is going to have successors. How's Moses going to have successors? By earning it. Differently, right? It's not going to be Dafka, his sons, that become his, that inherit the mantle of leadership. Who inherits it? Joshua. Why? Why does the text tell us Joshua gets it? God said he was smart and strong. He was one of the two, he was one of the spies who didn't get scared. So we're told that the spirit of God is in Joshua, right? So that there's some way that Joshua evidences being in touch with the divine that grants him authority to be the next leader. He speaks in a way that communicates that it is that it is godly, that he's a good man, right? That he's got the charisma and the and the message to and the ability to communicate it that is going to make him the leader. So there's very interesting literature written. We're not going to go into it now, but very interesting literature written about so what those kinds of leadership are, I've mentioned this to the, this to you before, that Aaron and his lineage is going to be about keeping things running, keeping the silver polished on the Torah scrolls, <coughs> keeping everything in good repair, making sure everything's happening on a regularly scheduled way, the way it's supposed to. The Torah study starts at 9.45, that meditation starts at 11.15, that tonight's services will start at 7 o'clock. And we'll do all the things we're supposed to do at those at those things. That's keeping things running, and that's one branch of religion and of a people. The other is intention with that, because it's about what could be, what should be, and isn't yet. Right? Moshe's the prophet. <coughs> the job of the prophet is to criticize what is, 
and to move it forward to what can be. And so those remain in kind of a certain kind of tension. And that some of the literature is suggesting part of what makes us rabbis so crazy is that we're expected to do both. We're expected to do both roles and that it's really not supposed to be one role, both to keep things running as they are and have people love that and challenge the people, right? You're not there yet. We're not there yet. This isn't how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be doing it differently. And what can that, right? So that it's kind of a, a crazy thing to have both of those in one, in one person. All right. So. Moses then recounts to his father-in-law everything that God had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians on Israel's behalf and every all the hardships that had befallen them so far on the way and how Yudhe had delivered them every time. And Yitro rejoiced over all the kindness that God had done, that Yudhe had shown Israel and that God saved them from the Egyptians that God delivered them from the danger, right, of the pursuing Egyptians. Here it is, Sarah. Here's what Yitro's there for, say the rabbis. Blessed be Baruch Yudhe Blessed be Yudhe who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yudhe is greater than all the gods, by the result, and we don't know what this verse, this part of the verse means. It, you know, whenever you see a translation, it's hard to know when the Hebrew is completely obscure. <laughs> but this is very obscure Hebrew. We don't know what it means. This vadavar asher zadu alehem. We don't know what that means exactly. But essentially, Yitro is saying, I now understand that Yudhe is greater than all the other gods. What do the rabbis say is actually happening here then? He's converting. He's converting. He's become a proselyte. He is converting to the Israelite Yahwist religion. And we get evidence of that, say the rabbis, when it says, And Yitro brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron and the elders come to partake of that meal and they have a sacrificial meal and a um, a ritual marking Yitro accepting the God of Israel as his God. Um, doesn't have to be. I just want to remind us. It doesn't have to be. <clears throat> Lots of times we see other people of other religious beliefs it was very normal in the ancient world that if I'm going to Egypt, I might make an offering to Isis, you know, or to, you know, if I go somewhere else to Baal, you, you offer to the god of the place. Gods were associated with places. There's a theory that Yudhe was associated with the, the Sinai Desert, that this is the god of the Sinai Mountains, right? And um, then gets translated, it gets carried to Canaan. Right, but that gods were associated with places. It was no problem for you to go sacrifice to someone else's deity when you go to their location. That's not a problem in ancient Israel, uh, ancient uh, Near Eastern religion. It's called syncretistic worship. That you can worship more than your gods at the same time. 
Exactly. Exactly. Is a it is a radical, radical move in the ancient world that we do not appreciate nearly enough. We focus always on one God. That's not really the radical move. It is kind of radical. But the radical move is you may only worship Yudhe Vavhe. That's radical for the ancient world. Why? Like why why does Yudhe Vavhe care if I'm in Yemensville? Well your mom will care. Grandma says don't you right? Well, it denies the existence of all other gods. What? It denies the existence of all other gods. Early monotheism does not deny the existence of all other gods. And this is a really important point, because we assume that. That is not what early monotheism does. Not even here. Not even at the revelation at Sinai. Early monotheism says... Those are not your gods. They are off limits to you, Israelites. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Adonai is one. Doesn't say Baal's one. Doesn't mean Baal doesn't exist. Yudhe is singular. Unique, maybe. But is your God, Israel. You don't get now to you know, go wherever you want and worship all these other gods. Only me. I am Elkanah. I am a jealous God. Which actually suggests that early monotheism believed there were other gods. I am a jealous God, meaning there are lots of other gods, but but we are in an exclusive relationship, and if you step out with one of them, there's going to be flaring of nostrils, and that is always a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, Anka Nut. There is reason to believe if you listen to someone like Karen Armstrong, she believes, and I've talked about this before, she believes that there are times in human history where there is a coalescence of enough stuff happening for human society that human societies all start to make a shift. And that the fact that there was a movement towards monotheism in Egypt, which was crushed by the people whose jobs would have been on the line, meaning the priests and priestesses of all the other gods, um, that, that that impulse is the same one that we see in early Israel. That there, there was something about that time, the axial age is what she calls it, that at the axial age, humanity was ready for another iteration and that lots of societies were making that breakthrough all at the same time. We we just know because of the written record of Israel's and because Israel's was successful. And I remember Rachel, Bless you. Rachel when she was leaving her father's house, her mom's house she took some the of God's. I don't remember the discussion though. Was that because we thought maybe she still believed in them or they were so it's, it's an interesting passage. It's a really interesting discussion that that I can't have right now. But but there's evidence that that was her her home religion, 
and so they were important for her. And then there's lots of discussions about why, but they were important for her to take. Pam? Um, getting back to Hebrew, uh, earlier in, in Genesis, we when we first meet Hebrew, Moshe has saved um, his daughters from the hooligans, and Hebrew's response is to throw a feast. And this time, he's doing it to honor Moshe. Now, because he delivered his daughters to safety, he's throwing a feast now, this time to Yudhe for delivering the Israelites to safety. So I see... Nice. And, and then I also wanted to say that it goes on to say that who is at the feast is Aaron and the elders... But Moshe, where's Moshe? <laughs> and I think this is part of the reason why um, Yitro talks to Moshe, because it's like, where were you? You weren't at the feast. And then we find out it's because he's been working from sun up to sundown. Nice. So, so Yitro's like, after the feast, is like, next day he goes to where Moshe's working. Like, what is up with this? This is not good. This does not. This is not working. Um, nice. And we have there the rabbis read that same motive when Miriam criticizes Moshe having married the Kushite woman. The rabbis understand that as Miriam defending Sipora. Like he's always working. She never sees him. What he has time for another wife? <laughs> You know, like that that's her criticism, not that she's Kushite, you know, which is where people go. She doesn't like her because she's a black woman or what, you know, it's like, it's that, it's that she's saying like, really? Portsipora raised these boys on her own, comes back, you know, Moshe's supposed to be able to retire or work a little less and play golf and she never sees him and now he's going to marry another wife? What's that about? All right, so, someone read at 13. <coughs> Next day, Moses sat as magistrate among the people while the people stood about Moses from morning until morning. When Moses' father-in-law saw how much he had to do for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing to the people? Why, are you, why, why do you act alone? while all the people stand about you from morning until evening. Moses replied to the father-in-law, It is because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a, when they have a dispute, it comes before me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known the laws and teachings of God. Finish it out. Keep going. Okay. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you are doing is not right. You will surely wear yourself out, and these people as well. For the task is too heavy for you, and you cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You represent the people before God. You bring the disputes before God, and enjoin upon them the laws and the teachings, and make known to them the way they are to go and the practices they are to follow. You shall also see from among all the people, all the people, capable men who fear God, trustworthy men who spurn ill 
Okay. <clears throat> so Yitro comes Mimaharat, he comes the next day. Yes, Blanche? I have a, another question. We are seeing ju- divorce. Oh, over again, just like today. And there's no remedy for it. Divorce? Did you say divorce? Yes. That, that Moshe is evidencing some behavior that seems to be possibly, and we're, or we're only arguing from absence. We don't know anything because we have nothing about their marriage. But the absence speaks pretty loudly to the rabbis and to some commentators, which is where they draw these ideas that, that, you know, Miriam's really critical that he's not spending enough time with Sephora, that, uh, that that's part of what um, is Yitro's trouble with him working so hard is his daughter doesn't have a husband that he's at work all the time and that that it, it seems true that there seem to be things going on here with Moshe that uh, that are evident still today and misprioritizing in some ways time so that the marriage suffers. Monogamy was not normative. So all the more so, Kalvachomer, the rabbis would say. Kalvachomer. If you have three wives and you're always working, they get one third of nothing. Yeah, well, I understand. I'm just saying the practice was normative at that time. Right? Yes. Right. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just no, saying. I know what my point is. Blanche is saying he's never home. Yeah. It can lead to real strain in the relationship, especially if there's more than one wife. Right? It, there's not enough, he's not even with her at all now. What if he's got two or three or like Jacob? Four, right? Even more, you know, uh, uh, of a strain in terms of intimacy and, and relationship and contact. Now we're finally giving family leave so people can be with their wives and their babies and there's a crisis. And uh, I guess we're doing it on our own. Well, we're not, don't even get me started. It's a big soapbox that if I get up on, I'm not going to stop. So about how America is with people being able to have leave to raise, you know, and be with their children. It's ridiculous. It is just absolutely ridiculous. You look at Europe or any other civilized, you know, enlightened part of the world, and it's ridiculous what we have. They have paid child care. They have wonderful child care centers. You know, you don't have to worry about whether your child is taken care of during the day. You get all kinds of time off, six months. What You know, you get help from the state with somebody coming in to do laundry. It just, it's crazy the stress we put on families. Huh? What's your answer that, that help come? No, I know you're giving more leave and all that, but I've never heard. The Scandinavian countries, People someone comes in. Hundred percent, and light cooking and light cleaning, hundred percent, and 
and <laughs> and we are the biggest country that say that says we care about families, family values, family values. It's crap. We don't care about families, you know. And anyway. That is that unlike today, where the elders of families hesitate to interfere in their children's lives, that we we sort of stand back and figure they're adults, they'll work it out, my place to solve their problem, blah, blah, blah. Yitro doesn't have that problem. He's out there trying to help the family. It's a very big issue. It's a very, very big issue that that Yitro feels completely comfortable going to Moshe to give him counsel. And I get the sense anyway that Yitro expects to be listened to. Like, he's not saying, look, I'm really sorry, this may not be my place. <laughs> Right, I may be overstepping. Right, you know, Yitro comes in and goes, "Yo, what is happening here? We got to talk." And I have some solutions. And oh, and we and right, this is how this needs to go. But not only because he also that's his profession. He's got that experience, and he knows as opposed to grandmothers who know nothing about raising children when they're talking to their daughters-in-law. Sometimes. He's not saying you should do, you know, you should really be homework. He's saying this is, you're overwhelmed with the people. This is how it should work. But I think Sarah's point is he he's speaking out of his experience, sure, but so... Mothers don't feel comfortable so out of their experience right now is what I hear Sarah saying, talking to their daughters-in-law or even sometimes their daughters to say, you know what, <laughs> this is not good for your kids and it's not good for you and this is what needs to change. Parents don't feel comfortable offering that counsel. Not speaking from personal experience. Do you think Let's look at it. Let's look at it because I think it's really it's. No, it's a wonderful text. Actually, it's a wonderful text because what does he say? The rabbis are very. You know how that carefully the rabbis read, right? This is a love letter, so the rabbis read every comma, every every word choice. They have a very careful reading of this, and what do they say? What what is Yitro saying? He sees that Moshe Yoshev Lishpot is sitting to judge the people. But the people are standing from morning till nighttime. So the rabbis say this is an issue not only of exhaustion we are dealing with our favorite one of our favorite roots you're going to have even now one more references to tell your friends about what are we dealing with here yes we are we are dealing with our friend Kavod we've been talking for weeks about this stem right here it is again it's gorgeous I love this so Kavod Kaved, what, what is ku, what is kaf, vet, dalid? Tell me some of the meanings of this. Heavy. Heavy, heavy important. Heavy weight. Important, having weight in the world, right? 
which leads us to if you put a vav in here so you write actually the word write kavod what does kavod mean? Honor. honor honor glory respect right? if misused if used wrongly what happened with Pharaoh with this stem? what happened? His wheels, the chariot wheels, were kaved. The chariot wheels wouldn't move, right? So we get the sense that you lock up. If if it's too heavy, in the wrong way, it's just inert, stuck, right? Which leads, of course, to Pharaoh's demise. If we get too stuck, (laughs) right, we can essentially put ourselves in a position where it's not good. So what is he saying? This is an issue of kavod. That Moshe's sitting and the people are standing. It's not okay. Moshe's not respecting the people. He's sitting and they're all standing in line. Right? That this is an issue of respect. That Moshe thinks he's so important. That he's so honorable that he can sit while the rest of the people stand. And that that's wrong for a leader. A leader shouldn't be thinking, ah, because I'm the leader, I'm important, you know, I'll sit and relax and let them all wait. Let them all stand. So it's a literal reading, but he's sitting, they're standing, and this is about honor. And you don't sit in someone's presence unless you feel more important than they are, right? So you go into someone's office, if you're standing, talking to them, and they're sitting behind their desk, what are they communicating? Get out of here. Get out of here. I'm more important than you are. I'm in charge. I'm not getting up. You can stand and talk to me all day, but I'm going to sit. Which is why I never sit behind my desk. Right? It was one of the best pieces of advice in rabbinical school. Never sit behind your desk talking to somebody ever. You always stand up and you come around the desk and you sit with people. And you invite them to sit. This is the rabbi's interpretation. This is, this is the rabbi's interpretation. Yes. 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 Power to make decisions. So we're gonna we're gonna go there. So so that's the rabbi's reading. But I just want to lift up that they see something else going on in what Yitro's saying. So what is this thing you are doing? Notice the language. What is this thing you're doing to the people, not to yourself? That's not where Yitro goes first. He's not saying you're overworking. That's not, you're going to burn out. That's not where he goes first. He says, what is this thing you're doing to the people? Which is exactly that point about the CEO. What you are doing is withholding power from the people. You are imposing your decision-making as being the only valid way for a decision to be made. And if you do that, you disempower all of the other smart leadership kinds of 
personalities in the people and oh, I lost it um, and when we talk in a, a CEO we talk in a corporation we talk about giving people agency we talk about giving people buy-in right that if you give them a project and let them run with it right they feel ownership of that and then they feel pride right when it goes well or they'll learn if it doesn't and they grow so Yitro sees that this is something Moshe's doing wrong to the people. So why do you act alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? It's not good for them. And Moses replies, it's because the people come to inquire of God. So they bring their disputes to me and I decide between one and the other and I make known the laws and the teachings of God. This is another textual place the rabbis say this has to mean this comes after Sinai. How else is Moshe supposed to know and interpret the laws and teachings of God if they haven't been given yet? Now some rabbis want to say doesn't mean this happens after God forbid. It means Moshe already knew. Moshe's in touch. Moshe has the thumb drive. You know, he's got it plugged into his USB port. You know, he hasn't come down yet with the document, but he's got it on the thumb drive. He has access right right to the cloud. Oh my God, that's very funny. Um, so, Moshe had access to the cloud and so already knew, but you know, you can decide for yourself. But <laughs> so Moshe, his father in law, says to him, The thing that you're doing, it's not, it's Lotov. Where have we heard Lotov before? Where have we heard it before? In this room. <laughs> You're pretty safe bet in this room. Ha 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 ha! Thank you, Pam. Lotov. It's not good that the that the Adam that the Earthling is alone. It's not good that the Earthling is alone. That's the only Lotov we see in Eden. What is Yitro saying here? Lotov, that you're doing this alone. Cosmically wrong. It's cosmically wrong from the time of Eden forward, even into the office. (coughs) It is cosmically wrong to do it alone. This is not how we roll. (coughs) This is a group flight. All right, so... There's an underlying (coughs) standing up for togetherness and cooperation and working things out. <coughs> Indeed. Indeed. So to Bert's question. Oh, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's not right. You will surely wear yourself out. And these people as well. How great an audience are we as leaders or bosses or parents when we're exhausted and burned out? How well do we receive the people coming to us for our decisions? Not so well. Or as parents. <laughs> That's what I said. Yeah. <coughs> we don't do so well, right? So it's not good for whoever's coming to you because you're 
burned out. And he says, what does he say? The thing is too kaved for you. It's too much. It's too heavy. And you, and I think there's lots of resonances underneath that. I'm reading in, but I'm a rabbi, right? I'm a Jew. We can do that, Jews. Um, I read into Yitro's words all of the resonances of kavod and kaved that we've been exploring. <coughs> Don't think you're so kavod <coughs> that you're so important, so full of glory that they can only come to you. <coughs> the thing is too kaved for you. You're making yourself too kaved. <coughs> And that's going to be bad for everybody. It's interesting, even though most delegates are on in the story, they still have still people who rebelled against him. Maybe he should have delegated more. This is about the judiciary. This is about decisions. Their betrayal, as God and Moshe understand it, is not about decisions. It's about Moshe's gone, and they panic. It's a it's a kind of a diff, it's a it's a different impulse, I think, than this business of people having disputes with each other and who's going to figure it out. <clears throat> All right. So then, Yitro says this is what needs to happen: is that you need to have a judiciary, you need to have lower courts and upper courts, and what we notice is that. <coughs> What Aviva Zornberg points out is that there's no mention of tribes here. Notice it doesn't say, for each tribe, set a judge for the thousands, the hundreds, the tens. Very interesting. Moshe Yitro says you should be instituting a supra-tribal system. It needs to now be beyond each group, you know, as you're coming together. You, you need something that's supra-tribal that brings all the tribes together in a you know in a unified court system and this is coming which is fascinating in the ancient world who creates the law who gives the law in the ancient world the king the king gives the law and it is therefore tied to being divine because the king has that authority and that power in israel who gives the law? God gives the law, right? And it's very interesting that Yitro's coming to say how the law... Yitro's giving the law, if we buy the order of things here, before Sinai, Yitro's giving the law. I mean, the, the process by which right, the law should be adjudicated, um, which is very interesting. A non-Israelite, right? Not a king... You know, but a priestly presence coming to say this is the process by which law should be dealt with. So, yes, lawyer. Okay. No, I okay. They haven't been for study as much as any of you question. Why are the Israelites still divided in tribes if they were all for five hundred years living in Egypt as slaves? Very nice. That was a no, not at all. No such thing. <laughs> we have 
lived history and we have biblical history. So sometimes they match, I mean, like sometimes they're closer and sometimes they're not. All of these texts are written much, 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 much later than the events. They are portended. They are supposed that they are writing about. And it is written by a people who is who are 12 tribes that originated as 12 tribes that then come together to create a nation state that becomes ancient Israel. They originated as tribes. Okay. So they're still being written about as tribes. So the only way for for them to imagine like anything would be a, divided into tribes. So but of course the good question is, you know, well, wait a minute. They in, in Egypt they were like one massive, you know, group. Um, but they would have descended from the 12 brothers who went down into Egypt so that they would tr- so you could say if you were going to try to make this history, you could say, well, the the descendants of Benjamin remember that even in Egypt they knew they were Benjamites. Benjaminites or you know, like they would have identified by tribe because we don't see that because it doesn't make any sense in Egypt to be dealing with tribes. But this is a, a nation state that was originally a loose confederation of 12 tribes. So, all right, so I want to go to Zorenberg. So if someone hand these out. because they want to inquire of God. So all we really know of God is that he did these, the Israelites, incredible uh, awe and shock and awe type situations. But now they're trying to have uh, some kind of personal relationship. They really don't know anything about God and that Heaven forbid we think it's it's actually about the dispute. You know, I owe you a shekel. You owe me. What does God want us to do when we're in this situation? Is what the people are coming to inquire. How how do we, you know, take this spiritual being and incorporate it into us? And it says they uh, when they have a dispute, it comes to me and I decide between one person. I make known the laws and teachings of God. <clears throat> so, I don't know, I just find that very precious. They're trying to find out, what does God want us to do when we're in this situation? Which, in some way, the next scene is an answer to that very desire. And the answer is not just the judiciary, but every Israelite. Every child will learn what Adonai wants, because Adonai is going to reveal the law, you know, the rules and the ways to live with one another to everybody. So you could even see that, that, that longing as a prompt. And God answers with, all right, come on, all y'all. All y'all need to come to the mountain, and I'm going to let, let it be known to all of you. He's Midianite. Midianite. Um, I, mean, I mean, he was so wise, especially for the people of the time, and yet they don't 
So the redactors, the editors, only chose these stories of Yitro to include. So Yitro doesn't become a figure. That That's the history. He's got his 15 minutes. He got his 15 minutes. Well, he could have stayed, but he went back, so he, that was the end of... And this is a literary tradition, so somebody chose these stories and just these stories, either because those are the stories that stayed popular, or we've lost the other ones, or people didn't go the Yitro way. You know, we don't know. Um, but probably, some people argue it does reflect um, a historical kernel of memory in some way because Midian becomes an enemy of Israel. And so to have the judiciary be um, the idea and the counsel of a Midianite wouldn't be made up later. That it's probably a very early story and a very early memory of a time when some of the leadership of early Israel would have had some kind of relationship with the leader of Midian. I think the power of uh, Hitro is uh, exponentially expanded by the care that he has for Moses. Because he says it's, it's too hard for you. It's not right for you. You wear yourself out. So there's, it's not just uh, giving him a better way. It's caring about him. And that's very powerful. It seems that Moshe hears it yeah. well. He takes it well. <clears throat> All right, let's look at Aviva Zornberg. I've once again managed because I'm so talented, to chop off the page numbers. Mm-hmm. So look at the page with no page numbers. <laughs> the other side has page numbers. <laughs> okay. Look at the page with no page numbers. <laughs> and drop down to the, the, the last paragraph on that page in this Midrashic reading. Yes? We're not going to read the Midrashic reading, but I want to go to a little bit about her point there. So, Laura, read, please, in this Midrashic reading. In this Midrashic reading, the central question, therefore, is, what did Jethro hear that made him commit himself to God and his Torah? The word by Yishma, he heard, becomes vital. What one hears has power to move one to heroic transformations. However, the question that the rabbis asked and answered in three different ways is already plainly answered in the text. Jethro heard all that God had done to Moses and to Israel, his people, that God had taken Israel out of Egypt. The rabbi's discussion, therefore, seems redundant. Jethro heard the whole story of redemption and was inspired to join the people who experienced such wonder. Go on. But the rabbis are, it seems, asking a more acute question. What was the specific narrative that had such power in Jethro? Behind this compelling question lies a radical understanding of the power of narrative to address the privacies of individual experience. The story that has generative power is more than a chronicle of events. It is a way of rendering a moment, a drama, that seems to resonate with the listener's inner idiom. Registering such a narrative, Jethro is drawn to hear more. Okay. Thank you. Author that you are. Um... I think this, for me, is a beautiful description of why we're sitting around this table, right? It's it's not just that Yicho heard 
the the facts. Yicho heard a powerful narrative that spoke to an inner experience, to an, his own idiom, in a way that was so powerful and so compelling that he wanted to go be part of it. That's that is a very powerful way for me of explaining exactly what we do here every week, right? We don't, we don't come to learn the facts in these books. We come to allow ourselves to, to listen deeply in a really open and different kind of way to the compelling eternal message of what is our own immediate interior incredibly important right experience this one precious lifetime we're given and Yitro hears in that sense is what Zorenberg is saying he feels compelled by what he hears that this is a narrative that has the ability to speak to his life and to inform his life and he wants to be part of that yes That we don't read them, so oh, I already know that story, right. I mean, so I don't need to read that again. That we're here to, right? But we're here to to confront what she's talking about again next year when we're different, yeah. when we as a listener is different because our circumstances are different. What's at the top of our hearts is different. What our spirit is wrestling with is different next year and that we come to these stories I love this idea that we come to these stories like Yitro every year to Shema right to to listen and hopefully God willing to hear the compelling message that each that only each of us can take from that story I can't take from it what you do this year right each of us has our own very unique special response to the call of that story, whatever that story is this week. Um, and it's a beautiful description for me of, of this Torah study business. Um, somebody go on, Yitro chooses. Yitro chooses desert nothingness over the honor of the world. His choice is on the face of it absurd. That is the thrust of the Midrashic reading of the words into the desert. The high seriousness of Jethro's intent emerges from that absurdity. Only in the wilderness can he hear the words of Torah. Only a place of nothingness can yield him his desire. Connecting this comment by Rashi based on Mechilta with the opening of the Parsha, therefore, we decipher the core narrative of Jethro. He heard a story that moved him to leave all the honor of the world in order to hear words of Torah. Hearing the story generates in him a desire to hear words of Torah. So hearing the story <coughs> generates in him a desire to hear words of Torah. Clearly, a different genre, words of Torah, are made accessible to him, desirable to him, by means of a narrative. 
So the narrative is so compelling that it calls him to want to hear words of Torah. The story calls him into wanting to hear Torah. A whole nother genre. When we are compelled by a narrative to leave the things of the world, the honor of the world, status, consumption, power, whatever, and really we're, we're called away from that into truth, into interiority, into big mind even. We start to want to hear a whole nother genre, which is teachings about how to live and be in the world and about what's really important. For me, this is an area, I was reading it last night, I was so moved, and it's so hard to put into words. This is one of those ineffable things, but do you feel yourself sometimes, like we get so caught up in whatever, we're caught up in the things of the world, the kavod shalolam, she says, you know, the that the rabbis say he left the kavod shalolam he left his position as you know respectful high you know priest guy in Midian he's called out of that into wanting to hear Torah and I feel like there are these moments where I can be reading something or learning with you all and something opens up and like you're like that's that's what I want to hear more of that's what I want to be about and and you get that that hunger for more. Like, I, why do I spend so much time on all the other junk? Right? This, this is this is gorgeous. This is life sustaining. This is what life should be about. Is I want more of this, right? I want more of this conversation. I want this to go on until seven o'clock tonight. Not that I could last that long, but um, why are we doing this every morning at at nine forty five? I, I wish this was my life, that every morning at 9.45 we sat together and learned, right? And that's what Yitro hears, right? That that something, that narrative that opens him up in a way that he becomes hungry for for Torah, for learning, right? For learning that's about what's really important, what's really gorgeous about the fact that we have consciousness in these bodies. Like, how fantastic is that? And like we spend all the time doing other stuff rather than figuring out what what does it mean that I've got a mind and a soul in this animal form? Wow, why do we spend all of our time figuring out what we're supposed to be doing with that, right? Rather than all of the administrivia. <laughs> Sorry, that's my life. I expose a little too much. Um, <laughs> instead of. You know, all the other things that we were about the Kavod Shalolam, the, you know, the, the job that's going to get us a bigger house and a better car and a better education for our children and agonizing over the private school application and, you know, which are they going to get into and which college is she going to get into? What, you know, that we spend so much time on, you know, Kavod Shalolam and, and Yitro, it's this Yitro moment from now on, I'm going to call it a Yitro moment, right? That he, in this Midrashic reading that he, he hears something and something opens up in him that it's like, oh my God, you get it that that's, that's what I want to be exploring. That's what I want to be about. When you get that ta'am, you get that taste. And then you're you're on fire for like, where do I get more? How do I get more? And uh, so it's a remind, it's a spiritual teaching for me, the Shabbat, to remember, uh, to allow ourselves to um, feel that hunger and like that passion for...
those kinds of reading, that kind of conversation, um, that, that kind of a TED talk, you know, <laughs> that kind of whatever it is that feeds that part of us that wants Torah, that wants learning, that wants to know, that wants more, that wants to understand. So I'm going to, I'll close this. I know we're running out of time. Turn your page over. Go down to where it says Rashi interprets the text to say. You see that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Somebody with a loud voice read there. Rashi interprets the text to say that Jethro is heard So a lot about it's too heavy for your strength. The fiber of your being cannot handle the the weight, the actual weight. When you're lifting weights or you're exercising, you know, when your muscles start to shake, right? That's when the fibers are beginning to break down, right? They're actually, they're, you're, you've reached exhaustion. They can't, they can't do anymore right now. They'll recover, and be stronger when they recover, but the muscle tissue is breaking down, and that's what she's talking about. That 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 thing right before the weight, the amount of weight right before the fibers start to tear, start to disintegrate. Go on. Jethro's advice, therefore, is to delegate the work of legal administration as a way of lightening his burden, which others will now bear with him. The ultimate effect of this reform will be you will be able to stand and all the people too will come to its place in peace. These expressions will resound with new power when we come to read of the peoples standing at Sinai. In paradigm form, Jethro is staging the essential problem of the Sinai experience. Can one hold one standing ground there? Can one bear the burden without implosion? Can one corrode? One's recognizable identity remain intact in the encounter with the transcendent God who speaks from the world. All right, you can stop there. I think this is a wonderful question that she leaves, that we'll leave with this morning for you to think about this Shabbat and into the week. About at what point does our identity have to disintegrate and kind of come apart in the face of revelation? in the face of understanding new truth 
when we reach a certain place, have you ever had these moments where you get something in such a new way that you know you will never be the person you were before? That something critical has shifted and your former identity is not able to stand with the weight of that truth, the weight of that revealed um, understanding that some part of who we've been comes apart and busts us open into something new. She's suggesting it takes great courage to move out of the things of the world into the wilderness, into that open place where we could get busted wide open. Because who wants that? Right? Like, we, we get very attached and very comfortable, thank you very much, with how I understand the world and how it works. I might complain a lot, right? But to get busted open is also extraordinarily terrifying. Um, and is really, I believe, you know, I, I don't want to put words in her mouth or on her page, but I think she's suggesting it's the only way that it can happen for us is that we have to be ready to be busted open in ways we can't even possibly imagine before we are called into growth and into who we are supposed to become. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.